Into the wild I'll go and into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Into the wild I'll go Into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Welcome to the Free Birth Society podcast. This is a radical space for women who are ready to celebrate their autonomous choices in birth, motherhood, and beyond. Together, we'll learn about wild birth through personal narrative, we'll explore the politics of birth, and we'll analyze everything that relates to our lives as women from a feminist perspective. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. It's been a wild freedom This week on the show, I talk with the sweet and courageous Kelsey, who shares her big stories of sexual abuse, teen motherhood, and becoming wheelchair-bound with MS. In her most recent pregnancy, she experienced a true 12-month pregnancy, which she contributes to being, at the time, a fruitarian. Kelsey tells us the wild story of fleeing from Taiwan in labor and barely getting off the plane in time to free birth her third daughter in a hostel in the Philippines. She shares openly about the abuse she endured, her radical lifestyle, and leaning on the connection she developed with her breath, her body, and her mind. Kelsey's story offers a vulnerable look at trauma and pain, personal choice, responsibility, and the transformative power of birth. All right, Kelsey, welcome. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely thrilled that we're doing this. This is such a long time coming. You have been, you know, around in the free birth world with some of your just wild stories since I you know, dipped my toe into this world. And I've wanted you to come on the podcast. I know we tried a long time ago. And um, yeah, I've just been really excited specifically to have you on and to have, you know, we'll see what we can fit into this hour because um, yeah, you've had quite the life and quite the journey and, and you've got, you've got the stories. So I'm really glad you're here. Oh my gosh. That's such a wonderful glowing introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I did, when I found out about the Free Birth Society group, the Facebook group, I was, it was a huge relief for me. It was like the first time I had found my people and, and not just my people, but my women. (laughs) I was so thrilled and so overjoyed. And I remember telling my partner at the time repeatedly, like, oh my gosh, this group and connecting with this group and being able to post, it's just, it's everything to me right now, it's saving me. So, um. Yes. And before that, I was doing it. Yeah, I did it from a true place of an authentic place. I was just on my own path. And that really started a long time ago when I took responsibility for my own health um, because of, for for a lot of different reasons. Um, Let's see, going way back, I was raised with this concept of like, we only really go to the doctor if we're really, really sick. And Maybe that had something to do with poverty and maybe it didn't, but that was the experience that I had. And a lot of questioning of that system was just in the air 
with my parents. And so I, I had it in the back of my mind. Um, and then the very real thing that happened to me as a child was sexual assault. My father sexually assaulted me as a little girl and then raped me as a 14 year old. Holy I God. had never been sexually involved with any other man and he raped me, stuck his dick in me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that was the, what happened. And it was so such a shock and such a change. And it brought me home to this, this reality that I was just in it. I was alone in it as a woman and a girl. And, and so I started, I started with that really vivid awareness. And then I, as I went forward, I did what most victims do. And I just like, I buried it. And I, I was like, I'm, I'm okay. I forgive him. I can move on. I can go forward. And I did that for so many years. And I did, you know, I lived a reasonably successful, peaceful life. Uh, and that was all buried inside of me. And it wasn't until I was 23 that I, I started to realize that uh, I couldn't bury it and stay well. And that's because I wasn't staying well. <laughs> um, that, was, that was the next thing that really happened that caused me to take responsibility for my health. And it was my MS. I was 25 years old. I'd had two pregnancies really close together, 16 months apart. My daughters were born. Oh, and, wow. mm -hmm, yeah, it was intense. And so those two things together, just that background and then those, those that pregnancy and the next pregnancy. And then I was in an absolutely horrible, abusive relationship. I mean, a violent, abusive relationship. And um, it's not shocking when you grow up like I did. You know, a lot of women do walk into those patterns. That's where I was when I got MS at 25. Oh. And I mean, my body, I had prior to this, I had been athletic. I had been really physically well, um, tumbling and just movement that gave me joy and really, really defined me. And so when my body started to fail, I, I, I just like, it was so breaking for me. It was so shattering for me. And, and I really went into the MS just hard and fast. And the doctors told me, you have, you have like a, a rapid form of this. You have, you don't have relapsing remitting. Like we thought you actually have a progressive style and basically told me you're going to die. Oh my God. Yeah, I know I was 25 and I had two tiny little girls and I had been always like vibrantly healthy and alive and joyful and cartwheels and back walkovers and just like defined by my physicality. And that's who I am still wow. now having recovered but at the time it was a devastating blow and so and then the next thing that happened is they're giving me all these drugs and of course at first I'm I'm taking them and I'm trying to go with it and I had reactions I had I just I responded to the drugs they were giving me with um I was like it wasn't accepting the side effects I wasn't expecting accepting the symptoms that they were causing and I felt felt like crap I felt worse and I I didn't take it lightly. I was just like, no, this is, this felt so wrong. And so I had these, I just basically had like a very loud objection to the drugs. So the doctors were like, oh my gosh, you're having reactions. The worst thing that happened was my, my, my youngest was probably five, six months old. Um, okay, stop. No, she was actually more like a year and a half old. And I had been taking Copaxone, um, which is a, an interferon or something and it 
it was a shot I took every day. And it was supposed to be making my MS go into remission and stay in remission. And what it was doing to me was causing me to have extreme uh, anxiety. And so I was living with these two little tiny girls and this wildly abusive man physically, I mean, saying the most horrible things to me you can imagine. Also physically just being assaulting me anytime he felt like it basically. Um, and he was on drugs, he was out of control. And here I am exposing myself to this because I, th- I thought, you know, <laughs> we could go all into that, but um, there I was, and I'm having this anxious response to the drug. So the first time ever in my life, ever, I had the thought that I wanted to kill myself and my kids. I was like, I'm gonna drive off a cliff with these kids. This world is so bad, it's so bad. There is nothing here for us. I love my daughter so much and we need to go. And that's where I was. And I, because I had in my life heard some point, um, if you ever get to that point, ask for help. So I'd heard it, right? And it was in the back of my mind. So when I woke up that morning and when I had that thought, and I found myself considering that, I picked up the phone and I called my mom. <laughs> and she said, oh, honey, you're, that's not you. You're having a reaction to the drug. You need to call your doctor. Call your doctor right away. Tell him what's up. And you can't take that anymore. Like, no, that's not you. Because she'd known me my whole life. I haven't. And I luckily don't deal with depression, so to speak. Um, not as it's been defined to me. And so... When I called her and she said that, I did. I, I called my doctor and I told him what was up. And, and they said, Get, don't stop. Stop your drugs. Stop taking that. That's not working for you. So um, I stopped the drugs. And um, after that, they told me, hey, you have only one other option. And it's this thing that could cause you to have a... Basically, the way it was explained to me was you could have something like a side effect like MS, but only it's a lot faster and it will result in death. So yeah, I don't, I wish I could remember what this was called. And I think if I Googled around, I could find it. But at any rate, I said, no, I was like, uh, not a chance. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I have little kids. And um, so that was kind of the last thing they had for me. I was like, no. And so I, I got off any of the drugs wow. and um and so I was alone with this and no one was trying to help me. No one knew what to do. And it was basically like I'd been given this death sentence and I had these tiny little girls. And now to tell about my actual physical experience at that time, I was in a wheelchair during that time that I just described. I was needing to take a wheelchair out of the house. Like I could crawl around in the house. I remember crawling around my house, trying to clean and being so frustrated that I couldn't walk around and do it efficiently. I'm crawling, picking things up, throwing them to try to get them to go where they're going. I was, I was so angry and frustrated. And there was, there were a lot more factors and I could go in a lot more deeply to the abuse and the circumstances surrounding it so that I could make it a lot more clear of that particular moment. But that's one of those stories that I have that I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave it at that for now. And let's just say that I was at the point where I needed to be alone in my body and I, I knew there was no one else who was going to help me get out of that moment of illness and incapacity. And just, I was, <sighs> yeah, I was broken. And so, but I wasn't broken inside of me. I knew like I had me, I was there. I was like, I was just cut to the quick. I was facing it. And it was like death. 
it really, it saw, I saw a death. I saw the darkness. I saw the edge. And I was like staring at this edge that I could topple off of and fall off of. And nobody was going to save me. <laughs> nobody. And so I just, um, I did a really, I kind of turned on myself. I was like, I did this serious inquiry. What are you doing wrong? That was the question. I was like, what, what is it? What is it? What's causing this? And it was such a strong, serious, ruthless inquiry. Like I was pissed. I was so at my edge. I was so ready to just dig in. And, um, and answers started to come really fast, really fast. Like it was almost instantaneous. And I, I realized like, I, it's like I saw, I think the moment was when the pain was so bad that I started to feel the pain and I, be, to avoid getting lost, I realized that I could maybe change it. I could change the sensation from pain and uh, it's, okay, let me, let me say, I had nothing, I had another choice. So the pain was in my arms and it was like burning. It was like fire running down my arms, fire running down my legs, fire running down my side. And um, I, it was heat. It felt like heat. I was like, so it's like fire. So it's like heat. So that's not pain. That's heat. Okay. It's heat. I'm feeling heat. And then I sort of sort of went from there and kept manipulating that sensation to shift it away from pain and shifted away and shifted away. And after, after some time, I was able to shift it to the point that it was actually pleasure. I got to the point in my meditation where I was like, I was practically like full body orgasming with this pain. I'm just like feeling this all. I'm like, just tripping on this pleasure. Like, oh my God, I have so much power. I have so much power. Like I can just change this. And it was, it was like, um, I never would have gotten there without facing death. I think, I think, but then again, maybe I would have, and maybe I would have had it if I'd never been assaulted and, and abused in the first place and broken. Maybe that's something I would have always had that ability to see my sensation and to manipulate my sensation and to really enjoy my experience regardless of. Well, and what, what you're describing is like accessing freedom within right. your psyche, within your body and and I hear you on like, on the one hand, this like extreme situation brings you there. And then on the other hand, perhaps intact, untraumatized humans could also have like a, a, an easier capacity potentially of accessing that. I mean, I'd certainly like to think, right? As I we think so completely. I think so completely because when I look at how I did this, I did it on my healing journey, my healing journey from what? Well, from the sexual assault, from the oppression that I was raised with, that I was born into. And so it's like, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had to heal, but I did heal. And when I did heal, I was well again. And that's what was happening when I was well. So if I had never been harmed in the first place, you know, it's like, yeah. Okay, so just go to go back to that time when I was manipulating the sensations for the first time. And then that was in the very beginning of my pregnancy with my third. And so um, the two little daughters were my second and third children. And my, my first birth was all the way back when I was 17. And so, um, yeah, this is not the beginning of my story either. <laughs> um, but 
but it was a really pivotal moment. It was a super pivotal moment that brought me to my free birth, certainly. And it was certainly um, just a, to, to, it was basically the thing that I see as a line between when I was fully oppressed from my abuse and still really in it, in victimization, so to speak, rather than stepping into a place where I was experiencing freedom and I was experiencing my own power and my own ability to heal intrinsically. And, um, and so it's a really, it's a pivotal moment. The next thing that I, I had done that inquiry, right? And I realized, well, it wasn't just the assault from my father. It was also this really bad relationship that I was in. Like, this is terrible. So um, I went through all of that healing and I, I went to a women's shelter and wow. I, I left my home state. And I traveled with my two daughters and my best friend from Minnesota to Oregon and met the father of my, my fourth child about a year after moving to Oregon. And that really was a, a very transformative moment too, because I was on the cusp of, of all of these new ideas that he really embraced. And together we expanded into some ideas that um, I still carry to this day. And so, so what's the status of your, excuse me, I just want to just, cause I'm super curious to like explain that a little bit more around you get off the drugs mm-hmm. and, and then it's like a whole nother year plus before you meet the father of your fourth child. And so how was your MS in that time? Yeah, it, it was, um, like I'm assuming you don't go to a shelter and move across the country in a wheelchair. Right. Well, truthfully, I was in a wheelchair in the shelter. No, I was. Wow. So I went because I, when I realized it, I realized it and I got out and I had help. I had some really wonderful women in my life who were helping me at that time and helping me care for myself and my daughters. Um, the best friend that I moved from Minnesota to Oregon with is an she stepped in and helped me care for my daughters she stepped in and, and spoke to me you know through um the abuse and and spoke truth and um having that support was really a huge difference and then I had a support person who was way older a woman who worked in some kind of a professional capacity I don't remember how I got in engaged with her but she really helped me a lot and she told me about the women's shelter because I was dealing with um, where am I going to live if I leave this guy and so she was like well I know you're not really because I wasn't really willing to admit this is abuse at that time I was only willing to say like this isn't working for me it's too crazy and I wasn't ready to say like he's an abuse like I do now but uh, she was and she but she didn't throw that at me she was like I know that you're not really calling this abuse but you do need somewhere to go And it would be really great, you know, if you could go and be with a lot of other women and just have a couple months uh, to figure out what you're doing. And so that's how I ended up in the women's shelter. It's like, I'm even a little talking about it is, it was a time when I was just like, I was super, I was in the shelter and we were told like, this is all secret. This all has to be really underground. This all, you cannot tell people where you are. Um, You know, you're, you're being kept safe here. And it has to be a full on thing that you do. So um, to even talk about it now, like, yeah, what charges he got and that kind of thing, I'm still just like, eh, 
that's enough said. So I got out of there because the police were a really helpful element in my life at that time. And um, I decided in the women's shelter that I would leave Minnesota because the police said to me, you need to go. We can't keep you safe. Sorry. It was a shocking thing to hear, but after what they had seen from this guy, wow. they, so they, they basically told me too, you need to take responsibility for yourself and get out of here. So it's not like I just figured this all out all by myself. I had a lot of circumstances that were like, hey, deal with this yourself. So, <laughs> so I did. Wow. And, and so how does the MS get better? I was just like, I would, could walk a few steps. I could be like, all right, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to walk to my wheelchair and then I use it to get down the hall. But I didn't need it every step at that point, although there had been times in the previous months that I had, but I had been trying to move and try, I had had some therapy and whatnot. And so, um, yes, I, it took me about um, three or four weeks of just like really, really pushing myself and trying to walk and trying to get to the point where I could take a few steps enough to abandon that wheelchair wow. that um, before I was willing to leave it. But I did. I, I didn't take it with me. I just. I took, I got in the car and we just had all our stuff, you know, and, and I went. Um, and then when I would get out, I would just like hold her arm and walk as much as I could. And if I had to sit down on the ground, I would sit down on the ground. If I had to sit down on a, on a dirty bench, I'd sit on a, I just, I just did whatever I could do to push, 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 push. And I knew that there was no choice at that point. There was no choice to sit in that wheelchair and, and just not push myself. I had to leave. I had, to, and I was really, really scared. There was a choice. You just knew which one you were choosing. Oh yeah. Right. You know, I didn't personally feel like I had a choice. I was so sure. Is what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the, in the choice to not waste away and, and eventually, you know, be murdered by this motherfucker. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for saying that, Emily. Hmm. Yeah, that's obviously where that's obviously what was happening. Okay, so I don't mean to keep harping on this MS piece. It's just I know it's a magnificent part of your story. And it's not a story we hear very often because because you don't have it anymore. Well no so I do I mean okay okay how do I have MS right now? Well, I still have the diagnosis and I still deal with the reality that if I do not take super, super good care of myself, I'm going to, I'm going to go right back where I came from and be in that wheelchair because in 2020, I had a relapse where I lost my ability to walk. And um, I also know why that happened. I just was, I was slipping on my program. I was not to, um, uh, the program is to free myself of stress. And it sounds so simple. I hate to even say it because I'm just like, eh, it's not like that. It's actually more like identifying everything in my life that's not good and getting rid of it. It's really, it was easy to do once I, once I had that, that inquiry, that sharp inquiry that um, where I had so much fear. I just, the inquiry was ruthless, pointed at, at me and I saw all the things. I was like, oh, the abuse from my dad, the abuse from this guy. And well, the things I, I was still smoking cigarettes on and off. I didn't smoke through my pregnancies. I would always quit, but then I'd start again. So stuff like that. I'm like, and then I had been a lot, like my diet had been really careful for many years, but then I stopped being careful when I was pregnant. I was just like, oh, I just need to be able to eat as much as I want. And so I was eating whatever. 
and I knew what I was doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people do. I, I really, really, really do believe that. And, and Emma, well, and I mean, it's not like any of it's all that mysterious. No, it's not. You know. But it's really hard to get to that point of doing that inquiry. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I, I eliminated a lot of things. I stopped smoking and I stopped taking into my body foods that felt like they were crap. Um, so, and that doesn't look like it, that doesn't look, it didn't look then like it looks now. I'll just say that. So it's not a one size fits all diet. It's just a matter of, I knew what I could get away with. I mean, are you, when you are on your like purification program, are you fairly pain-free? Well, pain, <laughs> we talked about that. Um, I have feelings, I have sensations. And no, it's not not like I don't have the pain, if you want to call it that. It's still there on my arms, in my legs, on my sides, sometimes my neck. I'm just like, I'll notice it. But it's as though that time when I when I started to play with it and when I changed my perspective from pain to a sensation that I have in my power to manipulate, um, from that time on, I don't feel it. I don't default feel it as pain anymore. I managed to do enough of a deep dive into my psyche that I, I changed the default. I don't, when I feel those sensations, it's not like, oh, oh my God, oh my God. Cause in the beginning it was so painful. It was so painful. I was just like curled in a ball and crying. And it's sometimes it's that intense still. But at this point, I'm, when I do feel it, sometimes it's like starts to feel a little bit icky and so then when I feel that I stretch a lot like a way lot and I move and then sometimes I I might take a supplement that I know works like magnesium or I might swallow turmeric um I might tell myself okay you just need to eat fruit for oh, three days <laughs> you know it's like something you're this isn't working you need to clarify so but it's usually movement. It's usually motion is lotion. I heard that on somebody's Instagram reel the other day and I just loved it because it's so true. It's been so true in my life. So what about your first three births do you want to share to bring us to your fourth? Okay. So um, the very, very first birth, um, when I was pregnant, I definitely did not want to have any uh, medicine, as they call it, any drugs. I didn't want to um, be told what to do. I absolutely, I was not going to take any of the drugs during birth and I was not going to let them take my child away from me. I was 17. So when I got pregnant, I had moved out of my mom's home. My, my mom and dad divorced when I was in second grade, but my dad stayed actively in my life. And he was like, he'd come and go, he'd drop in and out of the house. And, um, he continued to be abusive to me and my other sisters. When it comes to my blaming, I've never blamed my mother whatsoever for anything my dad did. I never thought she turned a blind eye or she was ignorant. Never. I only believe that she, she thought everything was okay. She didn't know. He was a master manipulator. And, and I, know in today? The, she knows today. Oh, heck yeah. During about the same time that I did the inquiry and I discovered that it was the abuse history that was causing this 
and was basically it was like it was in my body I had hidden it away in my emotions but I it got too big and it came out to my physical form that's how it presented itself to me and so I was like it was getting my attention was Uh what I thought I thought oh well it came out and came into my body so I would notice it and pay attention and have to do something about it and so at that time I started to talk about it I talked to my sisters first and I was like who's going to talk well I was the only one who talked in court, but they, some, yeah, I I have four sisters, so that's, there's stories, stories, stories there, but um, I was, I told the police what had happened, and um, went to court eventually, and he went to prison eventually, for a little while, not nearly long enough, oh my god, but a minute, it was good. I'm glad he got that sentencing because a lot of women don't get that kind of indication. No, and how how is it not for fucking life? Uh, exa- oh, God. Oh, yeah. Ah. Okay, so back yeah. to <laughs> your first, your first um, child, 17. Your parents were divorced. Yeah, were- so I was living in my mom's house, but my dad was, he, I remember I was 14 when he raped me, so that was when I was living in my mom's house too. I had done something like sneak out or, or hang out too late. And my dad came and was like, okay, I'm going to take this girl to my house to keep her away from her friends. And my mom let him because she was just like, I, she, my dad was also a deadbeat in addition to being abusive. He was a drunk and he wasn't supporting us. So she had divorced him and moved out and she'd gotten her own house and she was working way more than full-time at the post office and nights too so um she wasn't as much of a presence as I wish she could have been but she was doing what she needed to do to support us and keep food on the table and that was super valuable when that rape happened you know no my mom's house wasn't a safe place anymore because he came to he came to my house and got me and I didn't want to go I was like no I'm not going with you but she let him take me because it was my dad and I had done something wrong and I needed to be taken into a hand. And so he brought me to his house and, and that's when it happened. And so um, I knew I wasn't safe there. And I decided um, I needed to, at 15, when I was able to get a job, I got a job and I started working um, as much as I could. And I noticed that the manager of the Burger King where I was working was really interested in me inappropriately so he was 22 um I was 15 um but I saw that as an opportunity and I was like well this guy has an apartment and that would be an improvement for me and so I hooked up with this guy and went and moved into the apartment where he had been living with his girlfriend and who he broke up with because of me. And we lived together in that apartment. I continued to work at Burger King throughout my pregnancy and be really independent. Meanwhile, I was also going to school and still maintaining my high school. I had been a cheerleader and a tumbler and on dance line. And I was really thrilled, like like I said, with my physicality. And so um, I had to stop all those sports because I was pregnant, I, I was like, hey, I can still do the cheerleading. I could watch and I would do the jumps. Like, watch me. I'm, I can do this. But they wouldn't let me. So I quit, 
I was like, if I can't do that, I'm not going to stay here. I have better things to do. I'm having a child. And so I just kept working and um, was just incredibly independent paying. I paid for all my own sports fees and all of that and rent. The, the man I was with was all not, he didn't continue to work. He basically quit his job and let me support him. I had pre, okay. I didn't even want to go to the hospital. I was like, I want to have a home birth, but I know they would never let me because I'm 17 because it's just really, there's a lot of teenagers are not even seen as women. And so that's what I was dealing with. And um, by the time I got to the hospital and I was trying to stand strong, I did end up, you know, getting railroaded into taking some drugs and I did a lot of screaming in that birth. I just, I was in the hospital basically just making a huge scene. And they kept telling me, you're disrupting the other women. You are um, causing a scene and we cannot let you act like this. And cause I was screaming, I was in pain. I, they gave me, first of all, the problem is they gave me Pitocin, my water broke. And then I went into the hospital because I, I had read, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to go in. I went in and then they started to, they put me on the timer and I, I, they wanted to induce me because I wasn't apparently progressing quickly enough. And they told me at some point, they said, if you do not have your baby in the next six hours, we are going to cut you. Those are their words. And that's when I took the Pitocin. And after I had the Pitocin, that's when I really started to scream because wow, does that, how does that hurt? Okay. So I got to the, the end of that birth. And I was, I knew it was time. I was like, I need to push. I'm ready to have this baby. The baby is coming out. And the nurses were like, we just checked you. We know you're not. No. And they just argued with me. And I kept insisting until she said, with a really snide look on her face, she said, okay, well, if you really think you need to push, then go ahead and push. But she was just like, not at all convinced that I was going to. And so I didn't actually push I kind of let go basically I had been holding back and so I let go and the baby just like it was like one big rush and then the next one I was kind of more in it pushing him out and on the third one he came out and the doctor just barely got there and it was just a really fast happening and so that that experience really showed me what the hospital was up to and informed my decision to never go back. Um, so with my second child, which was with this abuser that we've been talking about, um, I knew I was gonna have a home birth and I didn't know how I was gonna pay for it, but I knew there was absolutely no choice that I was not gonna have a home birth. And so I figured out a way. I actually took out, I, I enrolled in college and took out student loans so I could pay for my midwife. And that worked. And so um, she was wonderfully, um, like, it, she was really aware of physiological birth. Shockingly so for a midwife. Now knowing what I know, I've realized how lucky I got. But I can still see how having her there, you know, it's what I was ready for at the time. It wasn't what I would want now, but it was what I was ready for at the time. I went through that pregnancy really um, largely undisturbed. 
And the way she did disturb me was good in that she kind of called me on the abuse. She was like, hey, if you ever want to talk about the fact that, you know, the man you're with is, is abusive, you can call me and we can talk. And so um, that was something that she, she did really gently. And I started to kind of see. Um, but that was my that was my first daughter and my first home birth. And yeah, like I said, she taught me about physiological birth. So when I was kind of so first before that, I had been present for my very best friend who had had she had a stillbirth. And we had been pregnant. I had walked with her through her pregnancy just as a really big support. I told her everything I know and I encouraged her and I loved her. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you're going to have such a, um, I was so excited because I was already really passionate about birth at that time. And so she, her baby at 33 weeks was found to be no longer alive. And, and I was present with her during the birth. She chose to honor her baby by saying, you know, this is still her birth. And I do want to have a birth without drugs. And I want to have it in as much peace and power as possible. And I really admire her for that. And at the time, I was just such in awe of it. I was like, wow, this woman is willing to do this, even though she's, you know, confronted with such grief and such tragedy. And so I had just gone through that right at the beginning of my pregnancy with this daughter and and that informed my decision not to have any anybody there at my birth because I really was I was really affected by it by that and I I she had kind of wanted to be there and thought it could be healing for her and I still yeah I remember my midwife when I was toward the end of this birth and it was um sort of going slow and she said listen if there's anything that's holding you back if there's anything that you feel like you know you should have done differently or that you needed to do before you can have this baby what is it like you, can you figure out what that might be to try to let this get you to this place where you're ready to actually have your baby and and I realized it was that, you know, she had wanted to be there, but I didn't want her to be there. And I didn't because I, the grief was still so present for me. And it was, I don't know if that's, I'm not necessarily proud of, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it. I wish I had been able to be that woman who was like, look, birth is, and, and the baby is, a, is, and it's just like, I wanted to be that for her. And I think she really wanted that. And I still, to this day, I'm just like, wow, that, that was a, that's just where I was at in that birth. I haven't been confronted with this situation, yeah. but I think that that's like, completely understandable that that energy mm -hmm. and grief is not your choice for a birth yeah that makes yeah. complete sense and it's like a pretty positive birth it sounds like it was it was wonderful she had fetal ejection reflex where I thought I had to poop and um I had just been laboring on my hands and knees got up and I said I have to poop. I have to poop and I went to the toilet and I did and then I flushed and she um, was standing outside the door, like, you know, you know, a good birth attendant at that moment, just being like, okay, I'm just gonna be here for you. Yeah. And I so strongly, as soon as I had done that, I felt her head engaged strongly and I couldn't say anything except 
I was like, ah, ah, dropping, dropping, dropping. <laughs> and she just came in the door and the baby just shot out like a football, like, ooh, just flew out. And she, she said she really had to like catch that baby. She was like shot out of me. And so, um, yeah, it was perfect. She was beautiful, amazing. And just like such a joyful experience. And then she, I got pregnant with that when she was about five months old with my third. So it was one after another. Before I got pregnant, the reason I got with that abuser in the first place was because this dad, my dad came up to me and he assaulted me again. He said, you know, you need, basically you need to fix what I did. You need to fix the damage that I have inside of me because I sexually assaulted you as a child and you need to make it okay by saying it was okay. And, and I responded just like, uh, no, <laughs> no, that wasn't okay. And I, no way, no. And I was afraid. And he um, didn't take no for an answer. And he touched me and um, I managed to get in the house. I was, I kind of just was like, oh, I have to, I have to go pee. Cause we were sitting on the porch. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be right back. And I just managed to like pull away just in the last minute as he was groping me. And just, I was afraid he was going to rape me again. And I got in, and I locked the door. And so after that, I called up this old boyfriend I had had. And that's how I got with the guy um, who I had my second child with the second pregnancy, during that pregnancy, toward the end, this man who I had chosen to be with because I was so afraid to be without a man because my dad was, I wasn't willing to get rid of my dad in my life yet. And so I needed him to protect me. And we were sitting on the couch together and he didn't like what I was saying. I was being confrontational, whatever. And he grabbed my hair and shook me around really hard. And I was like, really, really, really pregnant, nine months, just like way full on. And um that was the first physical assault that happened and the physical assault didn't stop after that. And so all during her early early baby month or early postpartum and all that, just like I was getting beat up. So, um, but I had such a beautiful time with her. Oh my God. She was so perfect and wonderful and my daughter and glowing. And it was, I was also in a lot of joy. And so that continued to grow. And so then this, this third pregnancy and when the, when the MS crepe crept up on me and then the inquiry and then her birth came along and I was pretty physically disabled. I was, my arms had been having these attacks where they would go limp and I couldn't lift them. I certainly couldn't lift anything else. Um, and I had a, a lot of pain and just overall weakness all throughout my body. Um, during the birth though, my midwife kept telling me she she was very physical in that particular um, birth and the support. She kept walking with me, and when we would when I would hold on to her because I felt like really weak, so I would kind of lean on her and she would support me and hug me. And she kept saying, "Just try to corkscrew that baby down." And she told me after she's like, "I don't know why I said that. I have no idea why that that's what I said, but that's what she said repeatedly." She said, "Just think of it, just spinning its way down." And the point is that when she did, when she came out, she really was actually um, spiraling. She came out and she was looking over her left shoulder and her chest was facing one direction and she was looking over her shoulder the opposite direction. So when she came out, she was like unspiraling herself from this twist that she had gotten into. And um, she was born in the call on the full moon on summer solstice um, and it was a very she the one I met? 
Yes, that's Rand. She's my witchy woman. I called her that from the time she was born. And when she was born, she had this just really magical, um, almost, it sounded like an old lady. She had this little whimpering cry that was like, and I, I got, I felt like she was an old lady, like I was holding an old lady. And, and that was when I noticed too, that I was deep, deep in trauma because I, I saw her as like, she looked, she had blue eyes. I am very dark and I have very, and my other kids had had brown eyes and she looked so different from me. And she had this, this feeling of like, I had a feeling that she wasn't mine. That was what I thought. I was like, she's a witch. She's not even mine. And I recognized that as being like trauma response. I don't know that I had that language at the time, but I was like, okay, that's a red flag. Of course she's yours. She just came out of your body, but you feel like she's not yours. Hmm. Okay. So what I started to do, and I hadn't even, I hadn't even run into like affirmations and stuff, that kind of talk. I didn't even know about that yet. But I started telling her, I love you so much. 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 And I would just hold her and kiss her and tell her that because I didn't really feel it yeah. when she was born because I was in such deep trauma because again, the abuse and blah, blah, blah. So but I also, I also think even without trauma, that also just for anyone listening, like it, it can be, it is on the spectrum of totally normal to not feel, especially in the beginning like that, like you recognize that soul. You know, I've had lots of women say that to me. Like, I don't even, like, I don't feel anything or I don't even know who this is or this doesn't even feel like mine. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they, it, they didn't have like traumatic births or they're not in, you know, these horrific situations. So, mm -hmm. I mean, for you, I'm not saying it's not a trauma response, but, but I, I think it also can just be like a normal part yeah. of like bizarre energetics of claiming a soul. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Thank you for saying that because I did at some point realize like that's a pretty normal trauma response. And so I really kind of identified with that, but uh, I like to have the other option too, of it just being like within the realm of normal. Then I, I, you already know the story of I left this guy and I left Minnesota. So now I'm in Oregon and I lived there for a year and I was during that year obsessed with doing Kung Fu, um, which was another big thing that really was in line with my fear. I was, I was so scared that I had, I mean, I was carrying knives. I bought a handgun. I was carrying my handgun all over the place. I got trained by this this kung fu school um, in shooting. And I, I was just doing kung fu like three, four times a week and obsessed with my ability to defend myself um, out of the, the very real threat that I thought I would have to. Sure, that's totally. Yeah. And I, I would lay there imagining like, this guy's gonna come in, he's gonna come in the door and this is what I'm gonna do. And this is how I'm gonna defend myself. And it would just replay itself again and again and again, just like constant. And so I was in that place and um, also in this really wonderful place of like, I left, I left, I changed my life. I'm in a new place. And Oregon is really warm compared to Minnesota. It's really beautiful. It has a lot of flowers. It's really colorful. It's really green. I was just like, I was in awe. I had never, I had seen the mountains on my way over there. I, I, had, I was just 
in a whole new place of awe with my experience and with my ability to manipulate it. And so I went through that whole year really strengthening in those in those um, resolutions. That, and that's when I met the father of my fourth child. And when I did, it was a choice that I made. I saw him as a, a person who was different than anyone else I'd ever engaged with before. And I saw that maybe he looked down on me a little bit because of who I was, because he was just like, just in a different class, so to speak. I was raised, I mean, I'm native. We didn't have a lot of money. I was bullied at school for being too dark skinned and I'm pretty light skinned. I was in a, it's just where I was at because everyone is so pale here. But um, I was coming into this, uh, I had this class consciousness of like, I'm poor and he's, he's like this glowing example of high class. And so that was a thing. And I saw that he maybe, but he was all, maybe looked down on me, but he was also like interested in noticing me. And I took it as a challenge. I took it as the first of many challenges in that relationship. And I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be with this guy. And it's really an interesting choice to make looking back, but I did that. And um, we were together for years before he became convinced that we should have a baby because I'd been convinced for quite a long time. I'm one of those women who kind of is into having babies. And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for this. What brought that relationship and that air of challenge that was alive in it is is really formative in the whole going forward with the pregnancy and the birth. Because when I met him, he was a fruitarian, so a high fat or high carb raw vegan and um, didn't really eat anything but fruit. And so I was already toying with veganism on and off over the years. And I just saw that if I were to jump on the bandwagon with fruitarianism, then I would definitely be able to, you know, be with him. And so I did. And my daughters were also dealing with like coughs and stuff that I figured were gluten reactions anyway. So I was like, this is good for us anyway. We're just going to be on fruit. We're going to jump into this with both feet. And so we did. And that, that was the definition of the, of our relationship is that we were different from everybody else, how we ate, how we lived, what we were capable of because of our, our diet and our choices. Um, we did a lot of movement. We did a lot of walking and yoga and jumping off of cliffs, like cliffs and bridges and trees and dams and anything that you could jump off of into the water. And it was higher, the better. And if you can do a backflip, you're awesome. And just like all about the challenge, all about mastering the fear, really all about seeing something as scary and then acknowledging that it's actually not dangerous. Um, this was kind of what we did for each other. We were very challenging to each other in that, like, I was breaking, breaking through barriers of fear that I had never even considered before. Because okay, I have to I just ask to... something kind of obnoxious. No. Weren't you hungry? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, no, hunger is a sign of health, okay? So it's important that women have nourishment. So important, of course, to the degree that they they need and or want it. Um, but where I was at, what I wanted was cleansing. What I wanted was purification. What I wanted was relief. 
And, um, and I wanted autonomy. I wanted to feel in my body so strongly, like I was 100% running this ship. And so in defense of anorexia, um, being obsessed with controlling your, your food um, can be a segue into autonomy. It can be a taste of your own What an interesting, power. yeah, totally. I, yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying. That's very bizarre. It and- is. I understand. I, yeah. Know. So anyway, it yeah, I've never heard anyone start a sentence with "in defense of anorexia." Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's mine. I'll write a book about it someday. I know, but yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I mean that is at the root, right? Is like control. And yeah. I like, was like, I was feeling like myself self-harming because it wasn't harm. It wasn't harmful because what I was experiencing. Well, I meant anorexia. Right. Well, sure. Yeah. You want to starve yourself. But hunger is a sign of health. And it is like, okay, if you can toy around with that hunger and allow yourself to really use it to feel inside your body and know where you stand as far as what you need and what you want and what the difference is between those things. That was what it did for me. Living as a fruitarian was absolutely the the lead up that I needed to um, choose to free birth because it was different than everybody else. I was looking around me constantly, noticing that what everyone else did was different. Everybody ate these other foods that I shunned and wouldn't allow myself to eat. And my body was more um, at, more flexible and more comfortable and more energetic than it had ever been before. I was physically able to do things I had never done. Um, and so I, I felt healthy. I was like, this is awesome. I have never had this kind of physical power before. Um, I was, I started to do back walkovers again after the MS, right? Like I'd gone through the MS and yet here I am doing back walkovers again in my early thirties when I haven't done them since I was 15. So it's like, and I can still do them now. So this, this program does have some it had the power anyway the point is it had the power to show me that I was living in a different mode I was living in a different world I the system had nothing to do with me the way people ate was different they had a whole mindset that they needed to to follow all these rules of diet and and that they needed to um like they needed medicine I didn't need medicine I just needed to eat fruit I was going to be able to heal anything no matter what I was never sick and neither were my kids because I did the, they were on the diet too. And so I was so confident, so confident that no matter whatever happened to me, I would not need any kind of like anybody else to tell me how to heal myself or to keep myself from, keep myself well. Um, but still, I wanted to have, I wanted to have a woman with me really at the end of it. And so it was December 26, 2014, that I had my last period. And the years prior to that, I had had very intermittent periods. Over the five years prior to that, I probably had had one period every like six months, but not regularly. Like sometimes it would go eight months without it. And sometimes I might have two in a row. And so I was fully into like amenorrhea. Um, I had lost my period. What any woman I have heard uh, would say like completely unhealthy. Your period's gone. That's such a sign of bad health. Your your hormones are completely out of whack, and you really need to change your diet or change your lifestyle. 
So that's what I've heard again and again and again. And yet I had my period that December and then um, I didn't have another period um, until, well, years after she was born. But the point is that I, I got pregnant. I got pregnant right away. Mm -hmm. We at that time decided to have a, have to start trying to have a baby. So we were having sex and the possibility existed. And I felt immediately, like as soon as we started trying that first month, I felt like, yes, yes, we conceived. And so the next month and the next, I was very nauseous. That was really the first symptoms that showed up was I was extremely nauseous, extremely tired, and really started to, to feel a lot more hormonal. Like my face started to kind of plump up a little bit and so did my breath. And I just felt so different. So I'm like, okay, so I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant now. Great. And I continued to just eat fruit and we, we moved to from, we were living in Cebu city at the time, which is a very intense city. And during the early part of my pregnancy, imagine traffic that's like side to side with, they've got like six inches between cars. And I would ride my bike through this traffic all in my early pregnancy, because that's what we did. The kids did it too. We just like, we're just really high adrenaline lifestyle at that time. So, um, and continuing to do like a lot of yoga and going to the beach and a lot of fasting periods of like 24 hour fasts and just meditating because that's another thing that I left out is that the prior year I had been, I had taken on a Vipassana meditation practice and I had meditated every morning and every evening for one hour. So two hours a day patient. And we kept that in our family culture too. So there was a lot of peace bringing activities and there was a lot of adrenaline soaking activities. And, um, and my pregnancy began in those circumstances. I felt the baby move for the very first time um, when I was riding on a jeepney on my way to teach a yoga class, because that's what I did there to make money. And um, I was buzzing and bumping and like the, the jeepney is just, you know, shivering. And I felt that feeling in, your, in my uterus that's kind of like bubbles or something. Like I just suddenly felt that really big, powerful movement when she was, a, when it was about a 13 week pregnancy, I had really been, I didn't pregnancy test at all. Cause I, I was not in that mode. I didn't want anything to be outside of myself. Um, I didn't even really use soap. I was just like, I wasn't going to use a plastic stick to tell me I was pregnant. I knew I was pregnant. And so I felt that for the first time, that movement about 13 weeks when I was buzzing along and I've made sense to me. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. So you're responding, you're, you're freaking out in there because this thing is a lot of movement. So then we moved from the Philippines to Taiwan and I was teaching English there. We both moved there to teach English and got this apartment. And I spent a lot of my time laying down in my apartment, which had a steel roof and it was like a hundred degrees every day. And so I'm, I just, also still only eating fruit and still riding my bike to go get fruit. So um, I would get on my bike almost every day and get in this traffic, which was equally crazy, equally intense, um, very similar. 
And I remember I would ride my bike to get the fruit and I would fill up all my baskets and I would have 12 coconuts on my bike and like four or five big bags of fruit. And because when you're only eating fruit, you got to eat a lot of fruit, especially a pregnant woman. And I, and the coconuts were the fat that I was eating, which was you, you open a coconut with a machete and scrape out the inner young white flesh. And that was um, a huge part of my diet when I was pregnant. Um, so that gives you a general idea of what my pregnancy was like. I moved in May. I got pregnant in December. I moved to Taiwan in May. And then I started like what I've just described, like doing a lot of laying down, being really hot, taking these bike rides, getting all this fruit. I would take these bike rides and then come home. And my, I had this hill that I would kind of go up a hill and then go down the downhill to build up the momentum just to get up the final hill to my house. And with all this fruit on my bike, it was very, it was a lot of momentum to be playing with. And there were times when I would get to my parking lot and just spill the bike and have to like leap free, like jump free of the bike and land on my feet. And my bike would go flying and my coconuts would go everywhere. And it was just like fruit explosion. It must've been, I wish I had that on video because God, what a scene, huge, big pregnant, nine months pregnant, 40, Right, because if you were having like a more average pregnancy, pregnant in December means you're due in like September, October. Right. That never occurred to me. I just was, I did a lot of reading during the time that I started to get bigger and more pregnant and the time went on and I noticed, yeah, 40 weeks is coming and I started to do a lot of reading and I picked, I, I found information about animals that were able to put their pregnancies kind of into a stasis when they weren't getting the nourishment that they needed um, and then have a really long pregnancy that was somewhat shocking. And I, I found information about like a woman's metabolic threshold that the reason a woman gives birth was because, or is because she's no longer able to take in the nourishment that she needs. And then also, and provide the baby with the nourishment and to stay clean enough. Like there's so much nourishment needed, but the toxicity that comes with a, a normal diet creates the toxicity that it creates means that the, the metabolic threshold is, is reached. And um, essentially what we're getting to is that you wind up having basically a full 11 to 12 months of pregnancy. Well, I did because I was, and I barely even noticed because like I said, I was in this different mode and I wasn't looking at the time, but I, at some point I had to be like, all right, come on now. You've been pregnant a long time. What's going on? And my, and my partner and I, we talked about it and it was like this joking thing, like, yeah, oh yeah, I don't do anything like anyone else does. Of course, I'm going to be pregnant for a year. And this is just how my body is because my body's not like anyone else's because I, I have a very unique lifestyle. And I was just, we, we joked about it. I don't know. It was, it was a point of pride, really. I was just like, yeah, of course. And the whole time I'm feeling her. And I, there were moments of, as that mother's concern of just like, hey, is this okay? Oh my God. Like, what's going on? Why have I been pregnant for so long? And why am I not giving birth? And so I would like check in with myself at those times. I would really feel, and she was moving. She was moving so much and I'm growing still steadily. And I felt really hormonally pregnant. I was like, no, I'm okay. She's okay. And I just knew I was okay the whole time. And so 
it just time just kept going on and on. And I did this research, like I said, and I found some things that were pretty intriguing that I could talk a lot more about, but it was enough at the time to kind of make me understand. I was like, all right, sure. Yeah. So I'm an exception because of my diet and because of my lifestyle and, and who knows, but it is, it's happening and it's fine. Leading up to that, we're in Taiwan. And um, I noticed that one, my visa is not going to last long enough to actually have this baby and then have her get her passport um, before I have to leave the country to renew my visa because I was on a tourist visa. I don't know how that's going to work. And I remember this conversation where he said, oh, it's not a big deal because the baby were born, I could always just spit bananas into its mouth or something and you could fly and do your flight to renew your visa and it would be no big deal. I could take care of it. And at that point, I realized how not on the same page we were with my awareness of a mother of what a baby is and his lack of awareness. That was a shocking moment for me. And it was just like, oh, yeah. my God, you know nothing. And so um, I tried and to kind of- And you're an get, asshole. And you're an asshole. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Those two things. <laughs> I'm glad you said it and not me. When that happened, I realized I couldn't count on him whatsoever and that I was going to have to leave this country be because, yeah, he also said like, oh, hey, but they probably won't catch you. You just need to risk it. And I'm looking at the internet and I'm finding examples of women who are put in jail because they are going over their visas and and he's super, super white. So Nathaniel, or, uh, yeah, the, he's just like very pale skinned and I'm not. When I get a good tan going because of my native and my gypsy roots, I'm just like really, really brown. So I was blending right in with all the other women who were um, Filipino they were um, being put in jail a lot of the time if they overstay their visa. So I didn't see a lot of difference between me and them. Yeah, I was an American, so maybe I would have been fine, but I was afraid. I was just like, she's looking at this picture of this woman who was in jail. She was in prison. Her baby was taken away and she looks a lot like me. I was terrified and I decided I needed to leave. And then there was this kitten and my kids found it on the street. And so I had this kitten in my keeping and I had given it some, I had squeezed some like colostrum out of my breast for this kitten to keep it alive. So I love this kitten. I had bonded with this kitten and it had really kind of brought out in me the mothering that I needed. The, um, like that juiciness of a mother, as opposed to the hard ass yoga obsessed, um, cliff jumping, fear driven in a lot of ways, woman that I had been. And so it was a turning point, that kitten. And I, I was like, I can't leave until this kitten gets a home. I'm not putting it back on the street. And the kitten was adopted and out of my hands um, and in good hands. I, it was like that last thing that I needed to let go of before I could birth. Um, kind of like my midwife had told me back in my second birth. It was like, if there's anything going on that you need to move through before you can birth, you want to get that out of the way. And um so the kitten was taken care of and I was finally giving myself permission to go. And um, I went down to my partner's office and that day when I went and finally bought the tickets um, with someone else's credit card in his office um, and on the ride home, I felt for the first time ever, I felt my cervix. I, I felt my cervix really strongly. It was like, ooh, hot little fire in my cervix while I'm riding my bike home and I'm hugely, hugely pregnant. Well, I wasn't actually huge at all. I was actually quite small, but I was really long in my pregnancy. And so I knew I was, I was in labor. That was the first sign. And I, and I had bought those tickets and the flight was three days away. So there I was 
on the way home and I just spoke to my baby and I, I spoke to my body and I said, we need to, or I need to, um, yeah, we need to just be still, just need to be still. And um, it's not time yet, like not yet. We just need to hold on, just wait. I knew exactly what to do. I just, I, be, I basically went to bed and I, I didn't eat very much. I, I just ate dragon fruit over the next few days, um, which was a fruit that I knew was really watery, really full of, of like vitamins and minerals and just a lot of life in there, but it was also low calorie. It was not dense at all. And so it was really light and it would keep me at this gentle vibration and not pushing into the intensity of the birth. I sat down in my bed, laid down in my bed most of the day. I sewed a lavender eye pillow. Over the next few days, of course, I had to pack. And I've got these two little kids who are still, at this point, about seven and eight. I also had a wheelchair, which had been a toy for my kids. We had picked up somewhere. And so I was like using the wheelchair to get to the bathroom. I wasn't even walking. I was just laying down in bed, really resting, really breathing, doing my meditations and and uh, not allowing myself to go into my birth. I was like, this happening, yeah, the birth is happening, but I am not, mm -mm, not yet. We're not doing this yet because I had three days. And so three days went by like that. In Taiwan, it was all very commonplace for the, the, the concept of rest is really highly valued. And so, especially for a pregnant woman, it was always being told to me, take a rest, take a rest. And so that's what I did. I just put myself at rest and that car ride, brought us to a train station where we got on another a train that was some maybe three hours about three and a half hours in a train and during that whole time still with the breathing and the just being all of my tissues just so soft and so relaxed and just noticing the sensations of my of my birth because I did continue to have contractions this this whole time all these three days I'd be like there's a contraction there's a sensation there's my cervix it's all hot and and I can feel it expanding. And I was just like, oh, okay, all right, I got, I got time yet. So I'm just going to let that, it's happening, but I was kind of ignoring it. I was like, I'm not giving you my attention yet. You're, yeah, 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 it's happening, but I'm not, that's not where I'm at right now. And so here I'm in the airport. And at this point, I decided maybe I should maybe tell my partner that I'm in labor because I hadn't told him. The contractions were starting to come really pretty much like instead of it being like this one and then I'll have them like 20 minutes later, there'd be another one. It was more like a sequence, one after another, after another, and it was starting to build. And so and I said, oh, I think I went to the bathroom. There was a little bit of blood, just so you know, because I am really, it's, it's going to happen pretty soon. Just so you know, he didn't, he didn't pick up what I was putting down at all. <laughs> yeah, I was really ready to get on that plane. Really, really, really ready to get on that plane because I knew like I had to get to the Philippines before I could have this baby. And, um, Finally, it came time to check in. We go to check in and I am doing the, the, the papers, giving them the papers and they said, okay, so where are your exit tickets? Because the Philippines requires you to have exit tickets before they will let you come in. So I'm like, hey, where, where can I get a computer access in this airport? She just gives me directions, go all the way down this hall and go up these stairs. And meanwhile, my partner's like breaking down. He's having a fit. He's being a jerk to the kids. He's like marching around, pushing the luggage cart, all pissed off at me that I had forgotten to buy these exit tickets. And he's just acting like basically having a tantrum. 
but holding it together well enough to be managing the children and um, the luggage and all that. And so I was like, all right, fine. Well, that's happening. I'm just going to, I'm going to walk down this hall and I'm going to go up these stairs. I'm going to use that computer and uh, buy tickets for us so that we don't have to spend all of our money to get exit tickets, which of course they would have cost. So I start this walking down the hall and I, a good long haul and by the time I got to the stairs and looked at the stairs there was just no way I was gonna climb the stairs <laughs> I was like okay so you you're really pushing it because you are full-on in labor you cannot climb a set of stairs right now you know what that's gonna do you're gonna have a baby in the, the airport in Taipei and so I was like okay I'm not gonna take the stairs I'm gonna go back to the desk and pay full price. So I went back down the hallway and I went back to the desk and I bought full price return and exit tickets so that they would let us on the plane. Finally, finally, finally get on the plane. And when the plane starts to take off, my kids who were again, seven and eight, they had never before had any kind of problem with their ears on flights. But suddenly during this takeoff, it was just so painful for their ears and they both start crying. And meanwhile, I'm fully in labor. And I just stood up and I walked away. And I went and I found another empty seat. Now, my partner must have managed it at that point. Um, I absolutely needing to be by myself and fully in my body. And so I went and I, I found a couple extra empty seats, laid down um, on my, actually got on my hands and knees and had my face in my hands and was breathing and feeling and really holding myself responsible like okay not yet not yet just wait and and also you know feeling the fear want to come in of like what are you going to do have have your baby on a plane what's that even going to do for the visa where would she even be like would they turn the plane around what would they do that would be you know I didn't know what so I just didn't even I felt it but I just ignored I ignored that fear so temptations were getting really intense now Besides those few words I had spoken maybe to my kids or to my partner, I wasn't making any noise at all because I was, no one even knew I was pregnant. I did not, I had a baggy shirt on. I was pretty small. I wasn't telling people I was, I wasn't supposed to be flying. I was really pregnant and landed and my, I stood up, I managed to stand up, which was somehow, it was a feat of, it was a heroic feat. It was just like, how did I do it? Um, I had to force myself to do it. Um, put my feet on the ground and stand up. And he, I, he came up to me and said, and after all of the stuff that he had done, that's just so awful. He said, just go, I'll get everything. And I was like, at that moment, it's like, it was all forgiven. It was just like, you are so perfect. Oh my God, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Um, and I did, I left, I left everything. I maybe I had like my one little tiny bag cause we were extreme minimalists. And so we had very little, thank goodness, but I have my one little tiny bag and I walk away and I leave, you know, exit the plane and I start on this hallway and I don't even know where I'm going but I just know I'm going into the Philippines to have my baby. And so I'm walking, walking, walking and I don't know how many minutes later he comes up to me abruptly and angrily and drops a bunch of bags and was like, you left without anything. I, I cannot carry all of this. He's got the girls with him and he's got all, a lot of luggage on him, you know, backpacks and bags. And 
and then he just walks away and the girls follow him I don't know why they they I had abandoned them basically so they were following him and um he walked away and I've got all these bags around me at my feet and so again I, I had to take responsibility for those bags I was like all right so I'm gonna put this one here and this one here and I just managed to get them all on me and then it was like one step at a time at that point because I am full on strongly in labor I'm still having strong sensations and I'm making no noise and I'm putting one foot in front of the other with a lot of luggage on me and it's a long hallway <laughs> and so I'm like step 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 and it was everything I could do it was like I had to gather myself for every step and breathing and just going forward and finally I got to the end of that hallway even though the bags were gone somehow there were these other hoops we had to jump through it was like oh we had to do our visa stuff right away because we came into the Philippines so we gotta fill out this paperwork about like visitor visa okay so the phone was a delay the visas were a delay but then finally we get to the the end of the, all of those delays and come to the point where we need to get a cab I remember I had to pee so bad. I got walking through this dark parking lot. There's like semi trucks everywhere. I remember looking up at the moon and seeing it's a waning gibbous moon, which is another thing that is so important to say here is that I was born on a waning gibbous moon. My mother was, and all of my birth started on waning gibbous moon or or progressed through that that phase. So it's like I saw the moon and I was, and I didn't know that at the time. I figured that out like last year, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I saw the moon and it felt really big to me. I was like, whoa, wow, wow, that moon looks so meaningful. And I'm walking and I had to pee and I kind of went between these two trucks and I'm peeing. And I, I thought to myself, should I just have the baby right now? Because I'm just like squatting and here's my hands and I'm just like, my pants are down. And I was like, should I just do it right now? Like I really considered it. But I decided it was best not to have the baby in a parking lot in the dark in the airport. And um I was like, no, I, I think I can, I think I can keep going. We eventually got to the cab and the kids were in the back with me and the bags are everywhere. And I'm just like shoving bags off me and I'm pushing the kids way out to the side and I'm laying down, taking the whole seat and I'm just writhing around and fully acting like a woman in labor, but making no noise, like just keeping it all inside. And um, that cab drive, that cab ride went on forever. Um, I think he got lost, maybe purposely to make more money, maybe accidentally, I don't know, but I, it took forever. Finally, we got to the hospital. I um, got, uh, somehow got up out of that cab. And, and again, I can, of course, considered in the cab. I was like, should I just have it in the cab? Should I just do it right now? And it's okay, it's pretty safe. I'm, at least I'm in the Philippines. And but I decided I could wait. We got to the, the hospital and I walked in and of course, I had done all the setup. I, they needed like my ID and my credit. I, I was the one who'd done all that stuff. And so it had to be me at the desk. So I did that. And between talking to them and being like, here's my ID, here's my whatever thing I need. Um, I would put my hands on in my head of my hands and I'm leaning on the desk on my, with my elbows supporting me on the desk. And um, they told me later, we did not even know you were pregnant. I can't believe you can't be so surprised what happened next. Really, they walk us to a room and it's a shared room, but there was no one else in there. And when we finally get into this room, we just explode into this room because of course we're all exhausted. It was a really long and hard trip for all of us. And I've got two little kids, you know, put the kids to bed real quick, no big deal. And um, said nothing to 
I keep saying my partner, his name is Nathaniel, um, said nothing to Nathaniel. He goes and lays down and falls immediately asleep. And then I, in a separate, like they're all twin bunks. He's on one, I take another one and I lay down and I'm still thinking to myself, oh, I'm, can I make this flight tomorrow? Can I actually get on this plane that I have scheduled for tomorrow when I'm gonna fly to this next place I'm supposed to get to in the Philippines where we had a, somewhere to stay? And I, I wasn't yet resigned to um, having this baby right away. I was like, not sure. And I checked in with my body and I really was like, hmm, I'm feeling, I felt what I felt, you know, and it was not possible for me to push any further, not even, no chance. And so at that point, I um, decided I wanted to tell, tell Nathaniel what was up really to come clean with him. And I said to him, I was like, hey, 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 I called him Fano. Hey, Fano, wake up, wake up, wake up. And he's like barely with it. And I said, so I'm sorry, but we are not going to make our flight tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to have the baby um, right now. And, and he like, he was, he responded perfectly. He just stood up off of his bunk. No, he actually said to me, what do you want me to do? What do you want? What do you want? Like, not in a mean way, like sincerely. It was like, what can I do for you right now? And I said, come here, just come here, come here. I need to like, I just need some support. You know, I just needed to be finally after that long haul of being like really alone and putting myself in that position to be like, deal with this yourself. And, um, and I reached out for him to him for support. And he responded by coming over he came over, he laid down next to me, he was stroking me, he started singing to me about how it's safe to let go, he's singing to me all these sweet words, and I felt so filled up, I just felt like perfectly held in that moment, and so um, after about 20 minutes of that, maybe, I don't know how long it was exactly, but I, I started to notice the complaints of this bed space, I was like, I cannot even like, I was like on top of him and rolling next to him. And then I tried to sit up in my, you know, the ceiling's right there. So I was like, I got to get out of here. And so I said to him, I'm going to, I, I want you to put something. I had brought these cloths with me of my very minimal packing. I had some cloths that I had selected that I knew I would birth on. And so I'd, I said, I want you to put these cloths on the floor and then I'm going to get down on the floor and I'm going to have the baby. And, um, and I was really, really calm about it. I was just like telling him clearly what needed to happen so I could birth. And I knew that I couldn't do it there on the bed. So I had to get down on the floor. So it was like, and he did, he followed directions and he put down the cloths appropriately. And um, I got down on the cloths and was, he was kind of in front of me, not really sure what to do with himself probably, but I didn't really need him anymore at that time. Cause I was like, all right, now I'm just going to have this baby. And so I got down on my beautiful cloth. It's like woven cotton and um, basically like a grandma shawl. And I was kneeling on it. And, and I started to kind of feel my belly and feel my, like my uterus area and, and feel my baby. Like, wow, she is, it's the baby. I didn't know it was a girl. Baby's right there. And so I'm still, I'm breathing. I'm really, really focusing on my breath. I'm really feeling sensations, but just 
feeling only my breath, like the sensations are getting ignored, the breath is getting focused on. And so that is how I was as I felt the baby really descending and coming into my vagina and starting to get to the point of actually crowning. And, and the whole time it was just all me and all my breath and all these sensations that are happening were getting so big and the fire was getting so hot. And I was just like, ignoring it. I was just like, yeah, it's there, but I am, I was practiced in my meditation to let that sensation just be there. And my focus was on my breath so hard. Um, I, at that point, when I felt her start to crown, that's the moment when I spoke and, um, I don't regret it, but looking back, I'm like, oh, this is an example of how it is so important to choose your words wisely because I said to him, and I had trained him for this months before I'd been like, so when the baby comes out, maybe you could just put your hand, your palm, like right on the head and let it come out slowly just so it doesn't come out too fast. And, and at that time, I can see now as a birth keeper and whatnot, I'm just like, um, managing the whole situation wasn't necessary at that time. I really, when I reached out and when I, I had that moment of fear where I was like, I need this to be managed. What if it comes out too fast? Well, I don't think that's even a possibility at the, but and I certainly after what had happened with my second birth she came out really fast so I don't know why I had that thought but I did and I said to him and also I just wanted him to connect with his baby I think a little bit and so I said to him I want you to press on the baby and I thought he would remember what I had told him about put your hand on the baby as it comes out so it's gentle he didn't at all remember that apparently because what he did at that time was put his hand on my belly and press down hard oh my god that pain whoa I can feel like right now as I'm telling you my cervix is just like whoa yeah because she was obviously like right there and when he pressed she it was the bit it was the biggest sensation I definitely had felt in the whole process so far and it was the first time I really broke in my noise making and I made a noise kind of like like it was a little whimpery it was still breathing it was still breath noise but it was a little whimpery because that hurt so bad and it was fully dark and it was over once it was over he stopped pressing um it was just a really short who knows it was just very short moment that he pressed and and um I was just trying to recover from that when he informed me that that was the baby's head, like the head is out. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Okay, well that's good. And then then I kind of checked back in with my poise and I was like, okay, so just, just cause actually I, I, I yelled out no, which is because to get him to stop. I was like, no, 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 not like that. Not like, not, not just stop you know and so it was like get off me and her head came out during that moment when I was saying no and um in that serious pain and being overtaken by this invasion that I had invited by not choosing my words wisely so um and then having that moment of, of even reaching out for that at all so her head's out and he tells me this although I'm sure I would have realized it very shortly if he hadn't and I said to him, okay, so on the next 
on the next one, the body, the, the baby's going to come out all the way. And yeah, I was like still trying to coach him with like what to do. I was just like, okay, so just, I just sat there. I was on my knees. Um, I leaned back with my hands on the ground behind me um, during the time during leading up to that. And so I was, that's the position I was in and I was reeling from that pain. And so in that moment of reeling, um, I was also breathing and also being aware that like her head is out and he's trying to tell me like, it's okay. It's moving. It's eyes are open. Everything's great. It's kicking. It's moving. And I was like, I remember thinking like, yeah, I know it's kicking because I could feel the baby inside of me moving, forming. Next one, she came out all the way and I immediately bent over and grabbed her and he kind of hoisted her up to me. And I mean, it was just like, we both had our hands on her for a second, but she came right to me and I sat there in the dark and I wasn't sure she was really tiny, really tiny, like barely five pounds. And I wasn't sure for a second, but I brought her to my breast and I felt her nursing and I was like, yeah. And I felt her body to see that she would feel that she was a girl. And um, it was totally dark. I heard a bird sing right after she came out. It was like totally dark, totally silent. And this first thing I hear is this bird sing. And I've got this tiny little baby and she was so, so limp and, and tiny. And I was just like, oh my God, is she okay? But then she starts nursing right away. So I knew she was fine. Um, then I felt wasted and I felt like I was going to die. And I was like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. And he starts cleaning up and kind of ignored me. And I laid there on the floor. He had given me some kind of blanket, which wasn't warm enough, but um, I was aware the placenta still had to come out. And uh, so I kind of sat up a little bit and some clots came out, I guess. And I, and I was like, oh no, it's like pieces of my placenta or something. I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't know. So I started to get scared and I grabbed these clots. I felt so exhausted and so wasted off the floor. Um, I didn't even know they were clots. I was just like, masses of red goo and I I ate it because I'd already planned to eat my placenta so I was like you need to do this you need to just like eat this stuff that's coming out of you because you have yeah I was I had nothing I had no energy I was completely wasted I was afraid I was gonna like collapse and so I had this tiny baby and I'm nursing her and I'm eating these clots of blood that are coming out of my coming out of me and um then we yeah, so that really revived me. I mean, like, I, after that happened, I was like, oh, my God, this is the tastiest thing I've ever experienced in my mouth. And um, I was able to lay down and nurse my baby and be at peace until I started to get that about an hour later, probably. And I, maybe I'd managed to get my way back up to the bed. But um, he was still cleaning up and figuring stuff out and probably bringing me things. But I I knew my placenta had to come out. And so I went to the bathroom. and. Um, we asked for a scissor. Meanwhile, the workers came in. They saw blood everywhere. They're like, what happened? And he told her when we gave birth, after she gave birth. And they were all like, oh, my gosh. And cleaned everything up outside and brought me scissors. And I noticed the baby's cord is no longer pulsing. It had been about an hour. So cut the cord and then got into the shower. I was still holding my baby. Tried to have my placenta, but wouldn't really come out until I called my daughter to me, Rayan, who's... Um, was like eight at the time and I handed her my baby and then asked my partner I was like I don't know my placenta is not coming out it has to come out oh my god and he said he's I'm squatting and he said to me well, why don't you just stand up and I did and the placenta whoosh, right came right out and so it was like the tension of the pelvic floor because of the squatting and the worry anyway it came out 
And um, yeah, and that starts, that's it, that's it. Orange is all done. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Wow. That is an epic tale. <laughs> There's always more to say, Emily, as with every time we talk, I'm always like, God, I got a lot more to say about that. But um, I did eat my placenta like over the next two days later after I tried to use it to like prove to the authorities that like, yeah, I had this baby and I want to make sure that it's shown to be mine and whatnot. But eventually over the, yeah, I did eat that placenta and I had like, I think that was like the very best thing I could have done because I was in a state of it, mm-hmm. like the nourishment was really wow. necessary for me. So, Wow, girlfriend. I know. <laughs> How can women find you? Oh, braiding sovereignty. I'm braiding sovereignty um, on Instagram at braiding sovereignty on Pinterest at braiding sovereignty. I am um, sexualassaultrecovery.com. And that's also a website you can find by searching Braiding Sovereignty, because that's the name of the, the site. So um, Kelsey Hitch, I'm Kelsey Hitchcock on um, YouTube channel. And yeah, Kelsey at sexualassaultrecovery.com is my email. I'm happy yeah, to talk more about it. All of it, all of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and for yeah, your willingness to share such big and vulnerable stories. Thank you, Emily, for making space for it. I always have so much more where that came from, but this was satisfying to get out finally. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today, my sisters. Check out everything we do, including one-on-one and group coaching, learn about our private membership, in-person retreats, and more on freebirthsociety.com. Our online courses are on freebirthsocietycourses.com, including our flagship course, The Complete Guide to Free Birth. Don't miss the Radical Birthkeeper School if you're ready to become the authentic midwife that women are searching for. Together we rise, and the revolution starts inside each of us. I'll leave you with our Free Birth Society theme song, Wild Woman by Aruba Red. We reject your fear, we choose love.
kissing with intention, death, ascension, I will fly and bring her back from the stars.